Bitcoin in its current form can scale, enough to process every transaction in the world. It just needs the right combination of layer twos. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to the show. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anyone else you know. Uh, We had a very, very long weekend break here, did some traveling. Uh, Sorry for the low output recently. Um, Like I said, uh, we've had quite a bit of traveling. We've still got some conferences coming up, and there's also a lot happening on the back end right now. I know I've talked about like changing hosting platforms, but we're also changing a lot on the business side. I'm really excited to get rolling on this. The wife has gone full-time now with Bitcoin Audible as of last week, and we're kind of uh, getting everything acclimated with the spaghetti bowl of ideas and mess that is 111 Productions at the moment. Um, we spent a whole day like just laying out all of the ideas, all the projects we've started and planned on being built, audiobooks, everything. Um, so uh, this is the first time that time has actually been written down. That's my level of organization before uh, my wife actually fixes it. Uh, but today's read is all about side chains. And in particular, this is kind of about the architecture of the big picture view of what the network looks like with sidechains. So it's very high level. We don't really get into any of the gritty details of how the drive chain idea works. Um, And just for anybody who is new to the idea, a sidechain is basically a transaction aggregator, right? There's just a bunch of different ways in which we want to be able to do a thousand transactions, 10,000 transactions, and then essentially publish the results of all of those transactions onto the Bitcoin main network so that we're only paying one fee to do so, or at least far fewer fees and transactions need to actually happen uh, than the total. So don't get bogged down with the jargon. Um, and, and I'll mention drive chains as well, which drive chains are just an, a very explicit model of making a side chain. So like, let's say if a, chi- a side chain was a car, there's lots of different ways that you can build a car, right? Well, a drive chain is a Honda. It's specifically one type or one brand of car. It's one way of building one. So I'm going to kind of use them interchangeably. Uh, but uh, we'll go ahead and just get into the read, and I'll cover the rest of it in the guy's take. Uh, really quick, though, let's keep the air conditioning on over here by thanking our wonderful sponsors, the hardware wallet for the sovereign Bitcoiner, not your keys, not your coins. So hold your coins like they are nuclear launch codes. Use a secure, reliable hardware wallet, the Bitbox 02. Discount code GUY, G-U-Y, will get you 5% off. Check them out at guyswan.com bitbox and our other wonderful sponsors to stack your savings, your Bitcoin that you send to your Bitbox, Swan Bitcoin. Use swanbitcoin.com slash guy, automatic stacking, low fees. You set it up once and you forget about it and even automatic withdrawals. 
to your hardware wallet. It is the Bitcoin savings plan and you get $10 for free by signing up with my link, swanbitcoin.com guy. All right, with that, let's get into today's read and it is titled, Sidechains for Scaling, Thunder Network by Paul Stortz. Part 1. Motivation Bitcoin, BTC the currency, in its current form, can scale enough to process every transaction in the world. It just needs the right combination of layer 2s. This post will introduce Thunder, a network of large block sidechains. By large block sidechain, I mean that the sidechain network is mostly identical to its main chain network, just with larger block size or SIGOPS limits. A. Today's Layer 2s Lightning Network provides some of the solution, but the main scalability benefits of a Layer 2 are lost if Layer 1 bytes are required to onboard each user. Custodial solutions, as originally envisaged by both Satoshi and Hal Finney in 2010, also work very well and are user-friendly, but the user is then beholden to the custodian. Here is a table comparing Thunder to those two more prominent Layer 2s, Lightning and Custodial. The main problem with Custodial Bitcoin is that Gold already tried that strategy, and after a short while, people stopped caring about the underlying Gold and cared more about the custodian's ledger, i.e. the custodian's opinion of who had how much money. State chains are another layer two with very interesting and unique properties. Namely, they do not require layer one bytes to onboard each new user, but they do require that every individual UTXO in use in the state chain be onboarded via layer one, which is better than lightning, but still problematic. Snarks do not help with scalability at all because they do not solve the so-called data availability problem. There is no way to use the snark to recover the sequence of events that led to its creation. There's also no way to audit the snark to make sure that it is working correctly without also having all of the original data on hand. Thus, snarks do not help with scalability and are probably only useful as an enhancement to SPV level security. B. A new framework. An old critique of scaling via block size increase ran as follows. It suggested that capacity increases were naive, unprincipled, undisciplined, and that they would lower the quality of the whole network. In contrast, enforcing property rights, i.e. enforcing the one megabyte block size limit, might seem cruel, but overall this Tough love is the only way to build a reliable, sustainable, high-quality system. That critique was accurate, and I don't mean to overthrow it. But I do want to change it slightly. Instead of a train 100% clean versus 100% overcrowded, I would rather people think of a situation where the same vehicle has different sections. First class, business class, coach, etc. In that model, the passengers have a different experience in many important ways, but they also have some things in common. First, or business class, is the small block layer one. Expensive but high quality. Cheap nodes. 
reliable access to the blockchain, high transaction fees. Coach would be the large block, scalability sidechains on layer 2, cheap to use but a more problematic full node experience, less decentralization. But crucially, the two classes can benefit by sharing the same plane. In the sidechain analogy, this is the two chains sharing the 21 million coin limit and sharing hash power and being interoperable, meaning that people who usually fly first class can choose to save money by downgrading to coach, and the people who usually fly coach can choose to upgrade their experience by paying for first class. In a world without sidechains, people have to fly on an airplane that only has one class for everyone. Transactions in the real world take all shapes and sizes. Not all of them require the same level of trust, and not all of them can bear to pay the same fee overhead. C. The Decentralization Gambit The one-size-fits-all full decentralization approach actually makes Bitcoin vulnerable. Committing to a policy of, quote, very decentralized only is a gamble. It is a bet saying, we live in a hostile world. If instead the world is nice, then we'll lose the bet. Decentralization is useful for resisting powerful people like governments, mafia, dictators, tech giants, cancel culture, etc. To obtain this precious decentralization, Bitcoin must sacrifice other precious things, ease of use, transaction cost, engineering effort, etc. Thus, in a world of friendly, powerful people who promote all cryptocurrencies, the advantage goes to less decentralized coins, Ethereum, BSV, etc. Worse, the, quote, powerful people can be aware of this and use it against us. At first, they can bide their time, allowing all cryptocurrencies to thrive, and thus, via network effects, allowing the least decentralized coins to use their natural advantages to eventually displace the others, including Bitcoin. Once decentralization has purged itself from the cryptocurrency world, the, quote, powerful people can then move in with a light touch and see what they can safely get away with, using the network effects as an anchor. Once that is accomplished, they can slowly keep tightening the noose from there. This entire risk is avoided if users can choose the level of decentralization they want, which is what Thunder allows. In a Thunder world, we do not need to worry about losing the bet that the world is mean. If instead the world is nice, then it only means that a higher portion of BTC's 21 million coins will be on less decentralized sidechains. If the world switches from nice to mean, then the coins will switch networks from less decentralized to more decentralized. It would never affect Bitcoin's competitiveness in the wider crypto coin marketplace, and the layer one main chain would never go out of business. D. Bitcoin versus the banks. The phrase Bitcoin versus the banks is a common Bitcoin slogan, but unless Bitcoin, regarded broadly, has a complicated hierarchical payment system with many layers and lots of netting among them, there is no possible way it can pose a serious challenge to the legacy banking system. It may pose a serious challenge to something else, namely gold, which is a good start, an excellent start, 
but gold is only worth $7.5 trillion today. That's just a tenth of global broad money, which is at least $80 trillion. Internationally, everyone borrows and lends in U.S. dollars. Dollars are required to pay those debts, forcing people to work toward obtaining them. That is a strong network effect. That's what we should want for Bitcoin someday. To me, quote, money is payment-centric. This explains why laypeople always ask, Bitcoin? But who accepts it? Money is how we keep track of who owes favors to whom. It isn't a medium of exchange or a store of value. It is a method of payment. Again, this isn't to say that small blockism is wrong. I am a small blocker. Bitcoin should fight tooth and nail to preserve its Swiss bank account in your pocket qualities. But unless there is some way for Bitcoin to scale to handle all the world's transactions, Bitcoin will never achieve its full potential. First, let's ask, how many transactions? Section 2. How many transactions are we talking? A. The United States. We can see from the 2019 Fed Payments Study Table B1 that the average card payment in 2018 was $54 and that 131.2 billion such payments were made. We can also see from the 2018 Fed CPO DCPC survey, figure 7, that by volume, cash payments are about 40% of card, credit and debit payments. This would imply 131.2 times 1.4, or 183.68 billion payments per year, card and cash, in the U.S. Since there are 52,560 blocks per year, this amounts to roughly 3.5 million transactions per block. If each transaction is 250 bytes, this implies block space requirements of 875 million bytes or 875 megabytes. We will need to beat the, quote, average rate by a significant margin. Transactions are not evenly spread out throughout a 24-hour day. Most are during daylight hours. But nonetheless, the actual expected usage of the network, determining the bandwidth, storage, CPU requirements, is the average rate. B. The World According to the World Payments Report from 2018, Figure 1.1, non-cash transactions numbered 482.6 billion per year in the year 2016 and showed growth of 9.8% per year. At that rate, there will be 770 billion non-cash transactions per year in the year 2021, which corresponds to a transaction per second rate of just under 25,000 transactions per second. We can again adjust by 40% to include the cash transactions, which would take us to 35,000 transactions per second. That figure will grow over time, of course, but we can use it as a benchmark for today. Section 3. How to achieve that level of transaction throughput? A. A team of sidechains. Well, by using all our Layer 2s at once, of course. But what I have in mind is several large block sidechains added in a sequence. 
We start with one side chain. It can have perhaps a 10 megabyte block size, which is programmed to rise slowly to one gigabyte over a period of 10 years. If more capacity is needed, we can either wait patiently for the 10 megabyte block size to rise over time toward its final destination of one gigabyte, but more relevantly, at any time, we can also just add another sidechain. I call this strategy Thunder, and each sidechain a T-network. B. How it works. As I mentioned, as time goes on, we can just add more Thunders in parallel. And here we have a graphic over time of the creation of additional T-networks. So we've got the original Thunder network, then Around the 2023 range, the Thunder Asia, 2024, Thunder Europe, then T China, then T India, then T Arabia, T Alt, T Africa, and T USA. End graphic. For efficiency, there should be many more intra Thunder transactions than cross Thunder transactions. Thus, the obvious thing is to emulate the banking networks of the past and partition the networks by geographic region. How might we get from where we are now to a future of many large block sidechains? It starts with the creation of the first large block sidechain. This sidechain eventually fills up, thus a new second large block sidechain will be needed. Old users will likely not want to leave the network they are on, so in general I would expect a new network to be created by the second largest group in a crowded old network. Thus, if the USA are the early adopters of Thunder, I would expect them to stay on the Thunder network, the first and oldest network, just as American telephones have the country code plus one. Eventually, hypothetically, in the year 2034, as shown above, the first network might become too crowded with non-Americans, despite the numerous non-American T-networks and Americans would want newer features, so the USA-centric network would be born quite late. Note that every time a new network is created, transaction fees drop for everyone. As for example, when T-India is created, all the Indian users quickly migrate there from the original Thunder, Thunder Asia, and Thunder China. The question of who has to leave and start their own network and who stays on the old network may become political, but this conflict is likely to work itself out. First of all, the migrants can start afresh with a new blockchain, getting all of the latest tech improvements, like switching from 4G to 5G. Second, there is a non-political criterion. Whichever members of the old network who are least able to tolerate high fees will be the ones that are motivated to move on, and they will then take their trading partners with them. So this process will probably be self-regulating. C. Realism. This scheme mirrors the actual structure of today's monetary system, which is probably a good sign. And we have a graphic with Thunder networks surrounding a central network. And, we, and here we have the main chain, Layer 1 Bitcoin, with branched off of it, we have Thunder Asia, the original Thunder network, Thunder Europe, Thunder China, etc. And then in comparison, we have the center of the international banking system, the Bank of International Settlements, and branched off of it, we have the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank, and the People's Bank of China. Quote, 
Looking at the map, it's quite apparent that the largest economies are the least open by this definition. But this is quite natural, because they are so large, much of their trade is internal. And he has a few other images to help demonstrate this. One is a chalkboard sketch of an 1800s era banking network with different local banks net out payments and settle with each other into a central clearinghouse. And then we have a list of Warcraft 3 servers, US East, US West, Europe, Asia, etc. You play on the servers that match your location for less lag and greater likelihood of players speaking your language, gaming during your time zones, etc. Section 4. Other Interesting Properties of Thunder A. Automatic Capacity Management When Thunder Network transaction fees grow too high, anyone can solve the problem by creating a new Thunder Network. But if that sidechain isn't genuinely needed, it will be unpopular and fail. B. Once and for all solution this scheme has the advantage that it solves scaling, or at least capacity, once and for all. Bcash, in contrast, for example, must raise its block size via periodic hard forks. This causes numerous big problems. One problem is the risk of splits, such as what happened with BSV, or of political maneuvers, such as what happened with Bitcoin ABC's IFP. Never hard fork monochain Bitcoin, on the opposite extreme, must hope that its current technical configuration will work now and forever into the future, or else it must hope that it can always succeed in central planning its way to victory, including that the current central planners can pick competent successors. Those two hopes are unfounded. The world is just too complex and changes too rapidly and chaotically. C. Technical Debt and Total Design Freedom New Thunder Networks do not have to be soft forks of existing Thunder Networks. The new code forks can start completely from scratch if they wish. For instance, if we had Thunder in 2014, then SegWit could have been coded as a hard fork. This incompatible version of SegWit could never have been merged into Layer 1 Bitcoin Core but it could easily have been merged into whatever Thunder Network came online in 2016. This would have been a big improvement in many ways. Code review, code complexity, transparency to the end user, likelihood of bugs, engineering time or effort needed, etc. Of course, it is probably wise for the Thunder Networks to share as much code as possible, but nonetheless, the option is there to make hard fork style changes. D. Future-proofing, hard-fork wishlist, competitive devs, and hardware. Since each new sidechain is a completely new piece of software, there is complete design freedom. Someone who cares about scaling, for example Roger Veer or the Bitcoin Foundation, could sponsor a contest to encourage new blockchain designs focusing on scalability. The winner would be whoever produced the software with the best performance. We could even have tindia.rogerver and tindia.blockstream, competing pieces of software. Indeed, they would all already be competing with each other. This can even be viewed as a competitive reply to those altcoins that have committed themselves to the strategy of periodic upgrade via hard fork, such as Monero or Zcash. 
Now, Bitcoin can do this as well, if by Bitcoin we mean to include all Bitcoin sidechains. Furthermore, each new sidechain might be paired with its own custom hardware. Quote, ECDSA signature verification. I can imagine people writing hardware that did 10 million per second. Gavin Andreessen to Greg Maxwell, November 2015. The proponents and critics of hardware scaling have both in the past ignored the all-important distinction between Layer 1 and Layer 2. To resist tyranny, it is indeed essential that Layer 1 Bitcoin full-node software run on hardware that is easy to obtain, and especially easy to obtain for non-Bitcoin purposes. But that is not true of Layer 2 software. Layer 2 software can be part of a customized software-hardware pair, and as a result, it can be outrageously more efficient. See also Peter Risen demonstrates hardware scaling, and Andrew Stone demonstrates software that handles 256 megabyte blocks. See Appendix 2 for some of my ideas on what the next T-network might contain. Finally, one last extremely intriguing benefit. Section 5. Security via Geographic Distribution How well can the nations of the world coordinate? If two nations hate each other, then each country's T-network can safely hide in the rival country's jurisdiction. A. Intro Quote, To make the scheme effective, it would be important to provide that banks in one country be free to establish branches in any of the others. F.A. Hayek, Choice in Currency, 1976. Quote, It's hard to imagine the internet getting segmented airtight. It would have to be a country deliberately and totally cutting itself off from the rest of the world. Any node with access to both sides would automatically flow the blockchain over. It would only take one node to do it. Satoshi Nakamoto, Re-Anonymity in 2010 B. Round-Robin Political Asylum Thunder networks will be distributed geographically for reasons of efficiency. This distribution may trigger a marvelous and most unexpected benefit. Round-Robin Political Asylum for Thunder Networks Large block networks are more expensive to run, of course, but expense is not the primary drawback of large blockism. Instead, the concern with large blockism is that large nodes must send, receive, and process a lot of data, and so it is therefore more difficult to conceal the node's physical location. This, in turn, makes the node vulnerable to harassment and subordinate to the local politics. For example, quote, a message forwarded from no-bullshit Bitcoin, Bitcoin dissidents, those who need it most. Unstoppable, uncensorable internet money. Bitcoin is catching on among protesters and dissidents around the globe. People rising against police brutality in Nigeria. Those fighting the ruling regime in Belarus. Journalists in Hong Kong and the leader of the opposition to President Vladimir Putin in Russia. They don't necessarily believe in Bitcoin's mission, but for the mission they are on, Bitcoin became an essential tool. Money is a powerful political tool and a chance to rely on something that cannot be weaponized by any state or financial authority 
is vital for the people who find themselves at odds with their country's politics for any reason. This is Bitcoin. The commentary, quote, This is Bitcoin, from the Samurai Telegram Group. Bitcoin is anti-tyrant and pro-protesters and dissidents. Now consider what things would be like in a Thunder-enabled Bitcoin world, when the jurisdiction and service area don't overlap. The people rising against police brutality in Nigeria would use the T-Africa network. After all, they live in Africa. The Nigerian government is strong, perhaps strong enough to hunt down everyone running a full node in Nigeria. But what about the nodes in Cameroon? What about the nodes in Egypt or Morocco? Nigerian citizens can just start up a node located elsewhere and VPN into it. Law enforcement in Morocco is probably not going to give a shit about why some crazy Nigerian dictator wants to halt some T-Africa payments. Would Egyptian police close down their own payments network just to help foreign Nigerian police? I doubt it. Politicians obsess about the political problems of their own country, but they care almost nothing about the political problems of their neighbors. C. Serves you right. But it gets better. Can't you imagine activists in the U.S. and Europe running T-China and T-Asia nodes? They could not only run nodes, but they could run servers that quickly create more nodes. Perhaps these people are refugees who have recently escaped Russia or China. Perhaps they are just political activists. Plus, there are always the foreign companies. Amazon Web Services can always sell indirectly T-China full nodes to people in China. They just need a VPN and some coins. And there are always the foreign governments. If there were just one Bitcoin network, then all tyrannical world governments might be naturally united against it, and so they would have an easier time cooperating to destroy it. But if there are many different networks that affect each country differently, some of the countries will be natural enemies of each other. The U.S. government might run T-Asia nodes purely to cause trouble for Vladimir Putin or communist China, etc., Maybe the Iranian government, always the victim of financial sanctions, would just run nodes of everything out of spite. Or maybe the mayor's office of London and NYC, financial capitals of the world, would run nodes of everything as a public service. The graphic above. The game Civilization IV. Your government can adopt the Emancipation Civic to make life difficult for rival governments. If many rivals each adopt emancipation, then you are basically forced to adopt it as well. D. In summary. My point is that the main drawback of a large block node is its large computational overhead, and therefore greater vulnerability to the local government's tyranny. An unexpected benefit of having a team of large block nodes, each serving a different region but via the internet, accessible from any region, is that the local government is effectively at war with node-wielding citizens in every jurisdiction. All the more so with DriveChain's blind merged mining. In blind merge mining, or BMM, node operators mine and earn profits which offset their node's operating costs. In general, these equilibrium profits will fall to zero, even if there are merely two competitors each trying to BMM, However, if nodes are subject to existential harassment, then the landscape would no longer be perfectly competitive. Some node operators would succumb to an existential harassment, but others would easily be able to ignore the harassment. 
giving them a comparative advantage and profit opportunities. Section 6. Adding it up. Conclusion. A. How many T-networks are needed? In Appendix 2 below, I estimate that a representative T-network transaction could be shrunk to 197 bytes. If all transactions are 197 bytes, then 500 megabytes worth of block space would hold 2.538 million transactions. At one block per 10 minutes, this would be 4,230 transactions per second. Above, we calculated total worldwide TPS to be 35,000 in the year 2021. So in other words, with just nine Thunder sidechains, Bitcoin could process every single transaction in the entire world non-custodially. B. What is the cost per T-network? In Appendix 1 below, I estimate the cost of a 1 gigabyte Thunder node to be $6,825.50 upfront and $386.98 per month. Is this cost prohibitively high or trivially low? This is best decided by you, the reader. It is about as much as Americans spend on their cars, a couple thousand down and then a couple hundred a month. Certainly, it is small compared to running an exchange, a mining operation, hiring a software developer, or purchasing two Bitcoin, aka one millionth of the total supply. It is small compared to the USD status quo, as currently we have no way of running a full USD node, so the cost is infinite. On the other hand, for a hobbyist, it's very high. C. Why not consider the total cost? The total cost for 9T networks would, of course, be $61,429 up front and $3,482 per month. But each user only needs to validate their own payments, and in particular, only those payments in which they receive money. Similar to the Lightning Network, users can safely disregard transactions that don't apply to them. And users can insist on getting paid on their own network. In that way, they should only ever have to validate one Thunder network. Okay, now this isn't technically where it ends. It goes into Appendix 1, uh, the US dollar cost of one gigabyte block size nodes. And it does a lot of math and kind of gets into more technical stuff and explicit details, uh, which if you want to check it out, I, I highly encourage it. Um, there's, there's a lot of other fun specifics that he does get into, but I don't think it's super necessary for the context of the, of the idea. Um, basically it's just saying that, you know, a huge block side chain isn't so bad as long as we're not threatening the main Bitcoin chain. Uh, and I, I tend to kind of, I kind of agree, but I actually disagree that we even need a huge block side chain. And I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, so I'm going to just stop it here. Uh, I think this is generally the conclusion of the main idea. Uh, and I'll link to it, obviously, so that you can dig a little bit deeper if you want. But real quick, let's hit our sponsor for today. And then we will jump into Guy's Take because I have lots of fun stuff that I want to cover on this concept. The Bitbox. Now, I know you've been thinking about getting one because you've been procrastinating, all right? You've got your Bitcoin on an exchange, and you know you need to hold your own keys securely, but it's a little bit unfamiliar. It's kind of scary. I get it. You haven't done it before. 
but there is no better time than now, and the BitBox is the easiest way to do it. Not only is the price consolidating right now, but the fees are even low because the hash power move, and it might even stay that way for a few weeks. So go over to guyswan.com slash BitBox. Literally, literally do it right now. I'll wait. I'll, ha- I'll hang out. It's G-U-I-S-W-A-N-N dot com slash B-I-T-B-O-X. Yep. Yep, that's it. All right, now go. No, no, not there. Go go to the, just go to shop. And you see my pretty face. Um, now go to add to cart right there, the BitBox 02. Mm-hmm, that's the one. Oh, she's looking good. Look at those rounded corners. Maybe throw in some tamper-evident bags or whatever. I, I, want, I want some of these because it's just fun. Now over on the right, you punch in your promo code, G-U-I. That's my name. Oh, look at that 5% discount. It's so good. Then you just punch in all your stuff, and you'll get a, you'll get a BitBox in the mail. Congratulations. You are about to be Bitcoin Sovereign. Okay, now. Let's hit guys take on some side chains and the Thunder Networks. Um, uh, just, just to say, and maybe it's just because I'm a dork and I really love the lightning naming convention, but I think whatever side chain implementation or idea that really catches on, I really want, I want to call it the Thunder Network. I think that's a good naming convention. Uh, hats off to uh, Paul Stortz if he was the one who came up with that. And he is at Truthcoin on, uh, and that is not a that is not a shitcoin. Um, he is at Truthcoin on Twitter, just in case you want to follow him. Uh, and he has been talking about drive chains and the sidechain concept for a long time. And I want to caveat this because a lot of people are like really like to push back on this idea, or they don't quite know how this implementation. Like, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? And there's a lot of like back and forth. And I think a lot of people don't really understand the drive chain concept. And I think, you know, generally I can't quite, I'm like, I can't give a really good high level explanation of it yet, but I'm working on it. And I want to do a episode more purely devoted to the technical, like how and why it works. So this will basically be a precursor to that, right? I think this is a great way to picture the network's and uh, and hopefully pretty soon we'll get into the nit and gritty of how it works. But a caveat to this, to BIP three hundred, which is the drive chain idea, um, and uh, or the the specific proposal to have drive chain implemented on Bitcoin, uh, side chains are inevitable. In my mind, I think these are going to be whether or not it plays out like Paul Stortz has said, whether or not it turns out to be quote unquote drive chains or space chains or state chains or whatever the hell it is i think side chains the the concept of side chains is inevitable and even with other things that we have in the pipeline for bitcoin um taproot just got implemented or locked in and it will be activated very soon then we've got any prev out possibly the next soft fork lined up, a bunch of these different upgrades and things coming to Bitcoin, maybe even simplicity way down the road. There's just a lot of things coming to Bitcoin. And I think many of these are going to make the process or the architecture of creating a sidechain design easier and more capable and that they are inevitable. I I just think that one way or the other, we end up with sidechains being a dominant part of the network 
and that we should be arguing or talking about or thinking about how to implement sidechains best and most securely, not whether or not they should be here, because I don't think we really have much choice in the matter. I mean, technically, Lightning is a sidechain. Um, I mean, it's a little bit arguable, but it's kind of like a miniature sidechain between two people, right? You're aggregating hundreds or thousands of transactions and you're atomic swapping from sidechain to sidechain, from channel to channel on the Lightning network to the point that you're building a network. Lightning is a sidechain, but it does have some limitations. There, there's, there's still a cap, I guess you could say, to how quickly we can set up and break down Lightning network infrastructure the channels on the network, because of course it is bottlenecked to the Bitcoin main chain. In other words, every lightning channel needs a address on the Bitcoin main chain. Now, there are a few things that the way Paul Stortz kind of lays out the concept of this, of these kind of like geographically centered um, uh, networks or thunder networks, I think, is I, I actually, there's some elements about it that I really like and then some elements about it that I really don't like. Um, but I don't think this is, I guess you could say, mutually exclusive or set in stone. I think this is just a way to conceptualize it. But I don't think it makes much sense, even though he's right, that if it kind of mirrors the financial system or the monetary system that we have now, but in kind of a decentralized way, there's probably some degree of accuracy there that there are important trade-offs or concerns about how to just kind of, just kind of like how Bitcoin should be a layered network. We see this in all of our other networks, right? We see this in money in general. We've seen this in money since the 1500s, essentially. You use, there's base money, then there's monetary substitutes, then there's the banks and payment networks, et cetera, et cetera. These things are built in layers. The internet built the exact same way. So it makes sense that we want to use those tried and true methods of extending and scaling the security model without compromising it. And everything we know about networks is that the layered architecture is the only way to sustainably do that. So in his using that philosophy or kind of using that mindset to apply this to the internet networks that we have today is that, you know, when I log on to, I love that he used World of Warcraft. Um, as the example that you log into the North American servers or the Asian servers or the, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You log into a specific set of servers that's for a specific geographic location. Um, but I think that's because of late, like, like that is specifically because of latency and when those geographies or demographics are going to be awake, right? Like, you know, like in the middle of the day, on the halfway around the world, it's the middle of the night, so there aren't many people to play with. So you want to be, if you're in North America, you want to play on the North American servers where there are actually going to be players. Then, of course, your lag on a server halfway around the world is going to be a whole lot worse. Maybe it's half a second, and in like an eSports sort of game, you're screwed. You're screwed if you have a half a second lag. And for that reason, I think that way of thinking about Thunder Networks is being geogra geographically centered. I don't quite think that will apply here. I think it makes more sense to have them tiered as far as security and liquidity um, and, and just speed of payment. That's why I think the Lightning Network, I think naturally too, like part of our goal here is to break down those demographic walls, not or the geographic walls, 
not build them up in a different way. It's to, and even he says, even he says that like, you know, if there was a specifically a North American thunder network, well, somebody from China could still VPN and use the North American, like, like it's not, there's not really any like financial walled gardens that would prevent somebody in China from using the North American server, right? You just kind of, you just kind of connect to it. It's still all open servers and that's, or open networks. And that's why I think those geographic distinctions won't be how it lays out. That said, if we get a situation where governments want to embrace the technology and embrace Bitcoin, but still have that facade that they have control, it also makes sense that maybe they want to build a side chain where they do be they can stipulate some exit price or something, and they can force people to use the United States side chain if you're in the continental United States or something like that. And technically, I, I would you know I'd see that as a huge negative to the openness and free flowing nature of the Bitcoin network. But then at the same time, centralized like there's no way to stop them from doing that. You basically, there's a way to do side chains. The question is, are they going to do it via uh, distributed miners? Or are they going to do it via multi-sig? Or are they going to do it by creating their own shitcoin token and their own blockchain? You know, an open permissionless system, they can build whatever they want, right? And they can interrupt with it and use the Bitcoin 21 million limit, or they cannot. And going back to the lessons of BitTorrent articles that I covered, um, which I think are really great, I'll, I'll try to remember to um, put them in the show notes is that decentralization is ultimately ultimately a protest. It's a protest against an antiquated or controlled system that refuses to adjust to a new reality or meet a new set of customer demands. And so when a decentralized system is built in its place, it's usually to satisfy that customer demand or that new technological primitive that they are trying to deny so that the industry is forced to push. That's what happened with cable television and physical media going digital, BitTorrent and Napster and all of these things. These were a huge series of protests that essentially survived until they were built in such a way that they could not be shut down. And at the end of the day, the industry had to move to customer-centered, your media whenever you want it on every device, and you have on-demand access to the entire catalog of stuff you want to watch. So in that way, I think governments creating sidechains with more enforced rules, with some, some political set of rules, is actually an interesting and potential concession that the political sphere might take. Since political systems are, in the end, many, many disparate individuals seeking their own ends, they will probably be aligned to investing in Bitcoin and saving that investment and not contesting Bitcoin, but still the political systems don't want to give up their control. So what they might do is create some sort of a side chain where U.S. citizens have to use the U.S. network or they have to accept the U.S. network and all U.S. merchants and blah, blah, blah. And maybe they try to implement some restriction or you can't because we're mad at China right now. You can't atomic swap to the China network. But it's kind of like trying to put up a firewall so that you can't connect to China or removing access to U.S. IP addresses is that there's just too many different ways around it because the base is decentralized. 
I kind of see that as being likely, right? Governments are going to try to figure out how to retain control. Um, and that might be a way that they end up doing it, or at least attempting to put up the facade that they still have control. And then we'll have a whole nother series of protests and new decentralized layers that end up getting around the micro censorship or the half censorship that the U.S. side chain is able to do, et cetera, et cetera. You know, like these things happen in tiers or in layers, right? You go two steps forward, one step back. That seems like a reasonable one step back, or at least one I might expect in governments that end up having to embrace Bitcoin as sound money. All of that is a really, really long way of saying side chains are inevitable, in my opinion. Now, my conclusion of this is going to be that I think this is a huge net positive, but I want to go over the negatives first. So the first thing uh, I want to hit is that I think drive chains are kind of sold as altcoin killers. And I think that's actually kind of misguided. I don't think... I don't think that's a very good selling point, and I also don't think it's an altcoin killer. Altcoins and shitcoins are casino tokens. It is about the pump and dump. It is explicitly because of the floating token that is illiquid so that it will go up 100x in price in a short term that they are heavily invested in. From that context, whether you want to call it a negative or a positive, in my, in my estimation, it's a huge positive there is no floating token on the side chain or the drive chain. You send Bitcoin to it and the 21 million limit still remains. In the side chain and Bitcoin main chain, there are still only 21 million coins. A lot of people argue or, or criticize drive chain or whatever and they say, oh, it's just another shitcoin. I don't quite understand that argument. I, I don't agree. In my mind, a shitcoin is something that a very select group or tiny number of people who have started this thing gets to make the coin or token completely for free, like an ICO, or they just get some sort of exorbitant privilege in the lower cost or the timing of creating the coins that others don't have access to, like a pre-mine or just an, just an early issuance or whatever it is. And then that token is sold to others based on false promises, just blind ignorance, or more often than not, outright lies. So in that way, Bitcoin on a sidechain is not a shitcoin. It's not an altcoin. It's not an alternative token. Nobody gets them for free. It's just Bitcoin under a different ownership model. So Liquid, uh, Liquid on the Liquid sidechain, Liquid BTC, excuse me, on the Liquid sidechain is... Bitcoin secured by a huge pool of multi-sig companies and institutions. So it's like distributed custodianship. Rather than being subject to the hacks or the failures or the jurisdictional uh, regulations or controls of a single institution under a single government with a single security model, you are distributed across 15, 25, whatever it is, and only if a majority of them are compromised or controlled or hijacked or whatever, only then is are your coins then at risk. But they still are Bitcoins. They're better than custo direct custodial. They are not as good as Bitcoin on the main chain or Lightning. But Lightning isn't as secure as Bitcoin on the Bitcoin main chain. You have to watch it. It's a live wallet. But because you make that trade-off, you get benefits. 
you get lots of cheap instant payments. Liquid, same thing. The federated situation gives you confidential transactions. It gives you a lot of more capability. It allows you to uh, shorter block times, you know, all, all the fun stuff, whatever. So I think the idea that because something is a side chain is a shitcoin, I think that I think that just doesn't make any sense. I understand the reluctance or the hesitancy to it, but it's just not a situation where somebody is arbitrarily printing tokens at no cost. Okay, another negative. I think one of the things that you could argue or that might be a concern is that one of the positives of not having a serious sidechain design or the freedom to just implement whatever smart contract you want on Bitcoin is that specifically during the block size wars and with all the politics of altcoins and all the casino crap of the you know Ethereum network and all these different things is that they kind of had to leave Bitcoin, right? They went over and they did their shitcoin casino and their altcoin tokens and their crappy insecure DeFi and like really painful like ICOs and all this stuff. And they just they just went away from Bitcoin. So Bitcoin politics were about how to secure the money. It really it really narrowed down the focus and the security of the Bitcoin system. And I think that was a huge net positive that they got to play in their own sandbox and do their own thing, and they left Bitcoin alone. So if you make an Ethereum sidechain on Bitcoin and then start and then start making all these tokens and DeFi and everything on the Ethereum sidechain, well, now it kind of brings that politics back to Bitcoin. Now those people are arguing with Bitcoiners again when really the point is moot right now. Brings all the meddling and the politics home to roost on Bitcoin. Now, I don't think this is a huge concern, and I'll explain why, but it is something to bring up in regards to negatives of the freedom that something like drive chains allows to build on top of Bitcoin. Then there is the very, very often repeated, well, the miners can steal from the drive chain. I really kind of think this is a misunderstanding of the problem, in my opinion. And a number of people, and Paul Stortz has hit this kind of relentlessly, Basically, this is a huge misunderstanding of how the thing works or how any of this works, actually, because in the same sense that miners can steal from anybody on a side chain, they can steal from anybody on the main chain. But there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't happen. And the model for why it doesn't happen is kind of the same. It's not exactly the same, but it is actually pretty damn close. But I'll leave it in here just because a lot of people say, oh, miners can steal from drive chains. But I just think that's a really wrong mental image to hold. And I'll explain why a little bit. But we'll go into it much deeper in the drive chain specific show. Uh, probably a guy's take episode. Okay, so I think those are pretty much most of the negatives that are in the general idea. Uh, so let's hit some of the main positives. So... I'll address the, oh God, the politics of Ethereum is coming to Bitcoin kind of thing, uh, is that even if that did happen, which I still don't quite think it would, just because, like I said, the token casino is all about creating illiquid floating tokens. Um, but let's say it does. Let's say Ethereum gets copy and pasted on a freaking side chain that uses the Bitcoin 21 million limit and now all the shit corners come flooding back over and now they're in Bitcoin. Well, 
it's actually still kind of isolated. So where they were isolated over into their own little sandbox over on the corner, now they're basically just isolated to the side chain. And it might actually help to harden Bitcoin rather than threaten the politics and the meddling of the people who want all the tokens and all the crap is because it makes the politics of the main chain even less negotiable. You know, you've got your side chain. You've got full freedom to break it however the hell you want. I'm not going to send my Bitcoin over there. You play. Like, you're, you're still in your sandbox. What we are simply using is the 21 million monetary limit. So there's technically nothing that you can't do over there. So you, you even have less reason to think that you have to do something with the base layer. Essentially, your excuses for why you should change Bitcoin are null and void now. It might mean that the cyber hornets now need to be even less apologetic about the changes at the base layer, but it simply gives the freedom or the leeway for, for that to develop, for, for to basically say, okay, yeah, let's just stop changing Bitcoin. It's secure. All we need to do is manage. All we need to do is make sure things never break on the base layer. So when changes are made to Bitcoin, it's not because we need a bunch of new features. It is simply because some slight incentive model or something is wrong, or maybe a script is has a problem or new technology comes out, quantum computing, maybe we need to adjust, whatever it is. All our goal now is to just keep Bitcoin alive and working and incentives aligned. Outside of that, it is ossified. It's a bedrock. It doesn't change. That's a huge bonus, I think, in my opinion. Um, another one, another major positive is side chains that are tied to the Bitcoin blockchain that are basically stamping them into Bitcoin as using the main chain as the ultimate source of truth and the order of events don't actually need full nodes to stay secure the same way that Bitcoin does. What you really need are nodes that go back to the last time it was stamped into Bitcoin, right? Is because you still can't change Bitcoin. Now, it's not entirely that simple, but it sort of is. Basically, an SPV, like a light client, that doesn't have the full blockchain, but then does have like the most recent, like the UTXO set, right? Um, in, in comparison, this, like, let's say, assume this blockchain works exactly like Bitcoin does and it just has slightly bigger blocks. That will actually be mostly sufficient enough to secure the funds on the sidechain from cheating or to be able to validate that cheating isn't happening. But that is made even simpler because Thunder networks do not need to be nearly, and this is also why I kind of skipped the appendix one about the one gigabyte block size on the sidechain. Thunder does not need to be nearly as big as Stortz suggests because of lightning. I still think these sidechains need to be thought of as settlement layers that are in tandem with Bitcoin. And I still think it makes sense that there will be a payments layer on top of it. And this will make the payments layer lighter and more agile rather than bottlenecking everything explicitly to Bitcoin. And I technically think we could do it all with liquid and lightning, but it makes more sense to give more freedom and variation in the security model of the side chains. And I think BIP 300 is a good addition to that. Uh, and more specifically, a really 
a, a potentially really desirable one. Now, I do actually want to push back on one line that just kind of made me go, eh, in the article, uh, which was, I'll just quote the whole thing. It says, quote, to me, money is payment centric. This explains why lay people always ask, Bitcoin, but who accepts it? Money is how we keep track of who owes favors to whom. It isn't a medium of exchange or a store of value. It is a method of payment, end quote. Now, I personally just don't like this framing because I think method of payment implies medium of exchange and store of value. Like, but like that is the end stage of a monetary good, right? But it is first and foremost a store of value and medium of exchange before it can be a means of payment. I mean, he even says in this line, money is how we keep track of who owes favors to whom, which means that money is storing that favor. So this is fundamental to what a method of payment is, in my opinion. So if something is the method of payment, it means that that's what I am storing the value in. Before I then exchange it later for a substitute good, it's the medium of exchange that I use to exchange my goods in order to have the high assurance that I can get that same good or its equivalent value of goods later in the future. Now, he's probably not really arguing against that in the article, but I think it might be interpreted that way. Um, and he's right that from the user perspective, from the person who doesn't think about any of the other reasons the money ends up becoming the money, to them it is just the method of payment. But I just kind of wanted to push back on that because I, I think even though that is the dominant mentality, that's the way the user thinks about money, that's not actually the truth of what money is. Maybe an analogy to explain this is that the average person is just going to say an engine, an internal combustion engine, is the way to make a car move. But fundamentally, it is a engine, it is a system of turning heat energy into kinetic energy. Whatever form of kinetic energy, however we want to use that, that is what the thing does. It converts fire and thermal energy into mechanical energy or, or kinetic energy. Just because we mostly interact with that by jumping into a car doesn't mean that's what it is. So in the same way, even though we think of money as a method of payment, more fundamentally, it is first a store of value and then a medium of exchange and a unit of account, et cetera, et cetera. These, these are processes that a monetary good goes through in order for it to end up a method of payment. Okay, some more positives about this sidechain slash drive chain idea or architecture. What I mean when I said a minute ago that Thunder does not need, the Thunder networks do not need to be one gigabyte block sizes because of Lightning is that I still think Lightning is fundamentally going to be the most used payment layer because it could be interoperable between sidechains. Like as Liquid gets a robust Lightning network and channels, Lightning's be Lightning becomes the network that bridges between all of these sidechains, whatever it is that we want to use, and then the ability to take advantage of the features of those sidechains instantly and cheaply. Now, he kind of talks about some of the limitations of Lightning, but I really don't think these are long-term problems. In fact, I think they're just kind of natural tendencies. You know, just the idea of, you know, you have to lock up more capital into Lightning than you necessarily need to use right now. 
Well, this is kind of all of the internet, right? You, you have to allocate more bandwidth and capacity to a user than what they need at this immediate moment. Like otherwise, we could just use low band radio for some users and then other users have fiber lines, but that's not how it works. Even though grandma's only checking her email, you still have to run a broadband line to her house and lay out a fiber network to her house, which will have a whole gigabytes worth of bandwidth available that she'll never use, but maybe she does, or maybe her grandson comes over and starts torrenting crap one day or watching Netflix, and she's suddenly using a hundred times the bandwidth that she normally uses, well, then you have to leave that option open. You have to have extra capacity and extra infrastructure for those times when it is heavily used versus when it is lightly used. And I think lightning is no different, really. It's just rather than being quote unquote bandwidth, it's capital, it's liquidity. How much do I have in my channel that I might want to make use of later? So I don't think the dynamics of those quote unquote limitations of lightning are anything new. And the routing problems are the same routing problems we have on the internet. And people say that, oh, you're limited to the lowest amount in any specific channel in your route. That's exactly the same on the internet. You're limited to the least bandwidth in the route to get to the California server that you're going to, or the highest lag that you're connecting to your World of Warcraft server. Like, again, that's not any different. It's not any different than it ever has been before in our communication networks. But even better with Lightning is that whereas you can't actually split up a connection on the internet easily and go 20 different routes at the exact same time, like it's just kind of not set up for that. That's peer to peer networks as opposed to the direct internet connection where you, may, you establish one connection and you keep using that connection. Well, capacity, we can branch out on a whole bunch of different routes at the exact same time. They're called AMPs, right? Atomic multipath payments. You use $20 on route one, $50 on route two, $20 on route three, and $190 on route four. And then together, you got a $280 payment. That's actually better than the bandwidth problems we have on the internet or the lag problems that we have on the internet right now. And the atomics, the idea that we're going to atomic swap between sidechains, I think it makes the most sense to be lightning bridges. I really think lightning is one of the key architectures for scaling here. And I think in combination with sidechains, it's just that much more powerful. And this is why I think something as small as a 10 megabyte sidechain rather than a one gigabyte sidechain can still provide that extra gap of settlement for opening and closing channels on the Lightning Network that you just would never need to be able to manage all of the world's transactions or payments on a series of huge block sidechains. I just don't think that makes a lot of sense, in my opinion. I still think it's superior to think of sidechains as a way to add functionality to the payment network layers, like Lightning, and then also lower the pressure, lower the fee pressure in opening and closing those channels while still having those fees go to the base layer miners. Therefore, the blockchain, always the blockchain itself, whether it's a side chain, whether it's the main chain, whatever, is still the settlement layer to the lightning payment layer. And none of it compromises or sacrifices or operates outside of the limit of 21 million bitcoins. Another positive, scaling is done. 
And I don't mean in the sense that like there's no work to do, but that the issue of whether or not scaling can happen, like like what the debate is about scaling in a very general sense is over. We switch then to a debate and an implementation details on how to scale with high security and high privacy versus scaling with low security or low privacy, all with various levels of decentralization, but never needing to go full custodial. But the question, the question of whether or not scaling is possible is just gone. It's just not, it's not part of the discussion anymore. We can scale immediately right now just by executing Thunder Networks. The question is, do we need to and what's the best way? What's the thing that's going to catch the most users and what do people value most in said sidechains, Thunder Network, etc.? Another positive, just from my thinking, is what would a chain look like? What would a blockchain look like if it was 100% top to bottom designed to make lightning work as well as possible. What if we redesigned Bitcoin from the ground up to make it as efficient, as fast, as secure, and as interoperable with lightning as possible? What would that look like? Well, considering the growing success and capital of lightning on the main chain, the incentive to build just such a side chain with all of the perfect conditions and scripts or whatever it is for a compatible lightning network would be huge. And again, you don't have to have massive blocks on this sidechain because it's specifically designed to make lightning as simple and efficient as possible. Well, then you're simply optimizing it for lightning settlement. So you're optimizing it for channels, which means that you specifically do not need billions of channels opening and closing every day. So you could still optimize it for very simple and low-cost validation, just not quite as low-cost as the Bitcoin chain. But, you know, if you're stamping some set of withdrawals and inputs, you know, refreshing it, like let's say there was a thing that, you know, there was a six-month timeline. If you actually look in the drive chain stuff, there's ideas of having like three-month lock or a six-month lock or whatever it is. So it takes a long time to settle specifically from the side chain even though all the users would atomic swap or lightning channel out they would never know that it took that long to settle it would just be something that major services and stuff used but from that context is that if your settlement time was three months and essentially all you need is a node that goes back on this side chain three months and you're you don't really have to worry about the rest of the history you just need a the current utxo set for the side chain Again, not exactly, but that trade-off, I think, is simpler with the sidechain than it is the main chain, because it's the main chain that's determining whether or not there are 21 million coins. And if you compare that with the current UTXO set and you have the history of your coins when you put them on the sidechain, then you know your Bitcoin can be withdrawn back to Bitcoin from the sidechain, and you know the sidechain does not invalidate the 21 million coin limit, and really, that's the... That's a really key thing that you need to do with a sidechain. And then the last major positive that I wrote down for this is regards to the Bitcoin main chain security budget. That at some point in this scenario or this model, this means that the security budget for the main chain can be staggering. Basically, Bitcoin and uh, lightning channels on the main chain would be very, very big 
high liquidity channels because each one would need to justify a hundred dollar or even a five hundred dollar on-chain transaction fee and yet the average user could still use it with a small fee and onboard to lightning very quickly and cheaply because of the ability to leverage sidechains to get this done so in that sense sidechains essentially become layer two and lightning becomes layer three and then something like the impervious ai the 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 application layer on top of lightning is layer four and you have these tiers that consolidate down of like tree branches that consolidate down the layers into higher and higher uh, higher and higher fees, aggregating many multiples of transactions. So, you know, each lightning channel is aggregating a thousand channels and then each side chain is aggregating a million channels on the lightning network. And then each one of those is withdrawing to a hundred UTXOs on the Bitcoin main chain, blah, 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 whatever you want to call it. But this means that those fees stack as you keep combining these things going down to the Bitcoin main chain and suddenly you can have tons and tons of capital secured by the Bitcoin main chain and you never have to worry about the security budget and essentially the quote unquote base layer cost of sending a transaction. With time, Bitcoin just becomes insanely secure and we can easily leave behind the era of the block subsidy. So basically, there are a lot of positives, in my opinion. There's a lot to unpack and a lot to think about. But at the end of the day, I think whether or not this way of thinking about it from a geographic networks and which server do you log into the North American server or the Asian server um, or the, excuse me, the North American network or the Asian network, et cetera, et cetera. Whether or not it's that model specifically, which I think, like I said, there's some things that I kind of like about that and that it's analogous to our current network architecture. I think it's kind of fun, but I also think it kind of leads to the inclination or the idea that maybe there will be some walls put back up and there will be borders between these side chains and the cost to exit or bridge them might be a little bit higher than we want. And I would prefer something where Strictly, it is just about the degree of settlement and they, there are no geographies, period, because you simply don't need them. This isn't an issue of lag or making sure you're playing a game with somebody who's awake at the same time. This is an open network that's running all the time. In fact, if you have a network in North America, it would kind of be stupid to not use it because it's going to be running full blast for 12 hours and then you can have empty blocks for 12 hours, right? Why have it geographically centered when it can keep settling stuff in Asia all through the night? So the geographic model might not be the one that I think would be most likely to play out, but I do like the Thunder Network idea. I do like the idea of this intermediary sidechain, this network that rests between the Bitcoin main chain the ultimate arbiter of the monetary good, the definer and the incentive structure that defines and secures the money. And then the higher, lighter payments layer, Lightning Network and the application layer on top of it, I like the idea of a intermediary settlement between the incredibly high assurances of the Bitcoin main chain and bridging the gap between the always have to have a wallet live and watching the network for your lightning channels. Anyway, 
Got to give some mad props to Paul Stortz for keeping the good fight, essentially. He's been promoting and pushing for drive chains for or the BIP 300 uh, for five, six years now. I mean, it's been it's been a long time and he has not diverted from this at all. And that's pretty commendable. And I think it's getting a lot of new attention now. And that's kind of exciting. I would like to see this get another chance in the spotlight to be part of the scaling and feature discussion again around Bitcoin. And I've got a couple of closing thoughts. But uh, before we do that, a quick thank you to Bitbox, the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet for helping people secure their keys and helping make people Bitcoin sovereign and supporting Bitcoin Audible. Uh, I, I love that they appreciate the show and my work and they help keep this alive. And the same with Swan Bitcoin, who also supports this show. Both of them have awesome teams. They're super responsive and they have great products. So check them out at guyswan.com right at the top of the page. But my final thoughts on Thunder Networks and sidechains is that sidechains are an important and inevitable. They are going to be built one way or the other with the tools that are available on Bitcoin. The question is simply how decentralized and how secure will they be? And I think we're going to come back on another episode to hit the specifics, the technical specifics of drive chains and why I increasingly think they are superior to most other sidechain models. But I just think sidechains are going to be a part of fitting the entire world onto the Bitcoin system, allowing us to explore all of the possible features or other decentralized network designs, all the possible privacy technology, and anything else that we can come up with while maintaining and improving the security of Bitcoin, the money, the 21 million limit, always censorship resistant, permissionless, perfectly sound money. That is the future I want. And Thunder Networks might just be a path to get there. Thank you so much for listening. I am Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.